This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's episode 12, so I think I'll call it a season right here until next time, and I can't think of a better season finale. Nine months ago, in May 2022, the music world lost a musician's musician. William Ingham Brooke Bennett, Wibb, was born on the 7th of February, 1936, and he died on the 12th of May, 2022. In honor of what would have been his 87th birthday on February 7th, I'm recording this tribute to Wibb for the American listeners and those around the world who need to know about this sound and artistry that we hear in soundtracks of films and classical music streaming services, often not realizing that it's Wibb. I didn't even really know him as my teacher. It was the fact I was raised by an English mother meant he sort of got me, and he even accepted me as an honorary Brit. I asked Wibb, who taught in London, to show up for me in Atlanta since I was the program chair for the 1999 convention for the NFA, and he did. Well, we will have stories, and they are shared by the incomparable Lorna McGee, who I interviewed, and then you'll also hear from Dennis Boryakov, Wissam Bustani, Emily Bynan, Joel C., and Jeffrey Zook. And of course, the music you're listening to is Wib. Thanks for being in Porter Flute Pod. I'm so happy you're here. I'd like to begin by reading from the obituary written in The Guardian, so beautifully, by June Emerson, the week that Wibb died. Shortly after returning to Britain in 1958 from studying in Paris, the flautist William Bennett received a phone call. Get to the festival hall as quick as you can. Sir Thomas Beecham is doing Richard Strauss's Ein Heldenleben and is a player short. The rehearsal has already started. This was soon followed by another call telling him to present himself in Manchester for an audition with the BBC Northern Symphony Orchestra, now the BBC Philharmonic. Five days later, Bennett was a member of that orchestra and embarking on a career as one of the leading players of his generation, both through influencing the development and design of the flute and making more than 100 recordings as a soloist many of them on his own Beep Records label, he sought to give his instrument, quote, the depth, dignity, and grandeur of the voice, or a string instrument, end quote. In 1960, he went to the Sadler's Wells Orchestra for a year, and then he became principal flute of the London Symphony Orchestra from 1966 to 1972. 
Then he went to the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, but was soon fired for playing truant in order to do a world tour with the English Chamber Orchestra. This did not trouble him greatly, as he enjoyed the freelancing life and never became a full-time member of that orchestra again. In addition to the English Chamber Orchestra, he freelanced with the London Mozart Players and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields and the Pro Arte Orchestra. There was plenty of chamber music in the Madelon Trio with the oboist Philip Jones and pianist Susan Bradshaw and the Lyric Trio with the cellist Margaret Moncrief and pianist Margaret Norman. As a recitalist, he traveled the world often with pianist Clifford Benson. With the harpsichordist George Malcolm, he made the first British recording of the complete Bach flute sonatas, and they joined the violinist Yehudi Menuhin in recording Bach's triple concerto in A minor. With Ossian Ellis, he recorded the concerto for flute and harp by Mozart and much else. He also appeared with the larger chamber groups, among them the Melos Ensemble and Nash Ensemble. Several solo works were written for him, including winter music by Richard Rodney Bennett and concertos by Diana Burrell, William Matthias, and the Venezuelan composer Raimondo Pineda. Composers for his trios included Matthias, Jean-Michel Damas, Peter Racine Fricker, and Cyril Scott. To extend the repertoire, Bennett did, quote, tons of pinching from works for violin, including the entire Beethoven concerto and several Mozart violin concertos and sonatas. He unashamedly included these arrangements in his recitals and acknowledged how much he had learned from the playing of violinists, such as Fritz Kreisler and Adolf Busch. Bennett also did commercial sessions. On one occasion, a group of people he had not met before, quote, shambled in, bringing all sorts of instruments. One had a sack of bells from a junk shop. None of them could read music. There was an Indian sitar player, so I went home and got my Indian flute to play along with him. A figure with an Afro haircut, red silk waistcoat, and yellow silk trousers shouted across, give Flutie a mic, will ya? He said my playing was real groovy and we were going to go for the take. After it was all over, I was told that this was Jimi Hendrix. Born in London, William was the son of Faith and Frank Bennett, both architects, and acquired the nickname of Wib from the acronym of his names. At the age of seven, he was sent to Beltane School, a, quote, progressive establishment that was evacuated to Wiltshire during the Second World War. While there, William bought a plastic flageolet from nearby Melksum and by bedtime could play Clementine. He acquired a plastic recorder, which he would play along with a gramophone. This was his first contact with the problems of pitch. When he slowed the gramophone down to learn the difficult parts, the pitch dropped. This early experience led eventually to his rebuilding and retuning his flutes in later life. Soon after this, he heard a recording of a real flute and felt that this was something far better than the recorder, so when he was 12, his mother bought him a thick wooden Rudolf Kart instrument. By the end of the first day, he was playing Bach's Sheep 
may safely graze. And at the end of six months, Bach sonatas and Rimsky-Korsakov's Flight of the Bumblebee, largely self-taught. At the age of 15, he was accepted for lessons by Jeffrey Gilbert, who loaded his pupils with a large quantity of scales and technical exercises, all of which he expected to be played through each day. The following year, 1952, Bennett entered the Guildhall School of Music in London. When the time came for national service in 1954, he joined the Scotsguard Band, but still managed to continue his studies with Gilbert. The three years in the band were an invaluable experience. New music appeared daily, often having to be transposed at sight, and under the fearsome conductor, Sam Rhodes, no allowances were made. The repertoire was wide, and performing on bandstands without rehearsal was, quote, hell at first, but a fantastic experience in retrospect, end quote, making him an excellent sight reader. In 1957, Bennett went to study with Fernand Cartier in Paris. He kept a notebook with two columns. On the left side, Cartier says this, and on the right, Gilbert says this. The right side usually won. While there, he was deeply inspired by hearing the playing of Fernand Dufresne, and he had a few lessons with another admirer of Dufresne, Jean-Pierre Rampal. The latter proved to be a big influence on Bennett's phrasing. He believed in the necessity of developing a singing tone and of being lighthearted and happy about playing the flute, an attitude that Bennett shared. Of a later period of study with another French flautist, Marcel Moise in Switzerland and France from 1965 onwards, Bennett said that the experience was like, quote, having lessons from God, end quote. Bennett's interest in pitch and tuning, which continued at school with his making of a flute from an old bicycle pump, led to the construction of several other instruments, including a balalaika and a guitar. When he acquired a Morley flute, he began carving at the holes and moving the tone holes in order to get it to play in tune. He then rebuilt an old Rudolf card flute onto a new silver tube and making it as near to the scale of a Powell flute as possible. He showed it to his teacher and after a few adjustments, Gilbert pronounced it better in tune than a real Powell. <laughs> this led to cooperation with the makers Elmer Cole and Albert Cooper and the development of the Cooper scale and the Bennett scale. For most of his career, Bennett played a Louis Lot, the same make of instrument as played by his hero, Dufresne, but tuned to his own scale. In 2012, he upgraded the Bennett scale used for Altus flutes from Japan and Stephen Wessel flutes from Somerset. He ran master classes and a summer school and taught in Freiburg, Germany and from 1986 at the Royal Academy of Music in London. In 1995, he was appointed OBE. And for those who don't know what that is, I'll interject that stands for 
officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. And OBE is the second highest ranking order of the British Empire Award. WIB continued to organize flute events until the coronavirus pandemic intervened. The thread that ran through Bennett's career was the sheer delight he took in flute playing. He is survived by his wife, Michi Komiyama. She survived him along with their son, Timothy, his daughters, Fenora and Sophie, and grandchildren, Luke, Joe, and Naomi. And I'd like to thank June Emerson for writing this in The Guardian in the UK five days after Wib died. I'm delighted I could bring it to, to our listeners and give your article extended life for our future flute family and future generations. Lorna McGee, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're talking about William Bennett because he was a shining star. When I was around him, I felt welcome instead of, oh, I was never your student, you know. It was so giving, conventions or whatever. And the older he got, you know, he'd have all these people around him, right? And he would always just nod and know. Uh, I, I don't know if, if knowing who you are as a young person means anything, but it meant something to me, <laughs> you know? I think yeah. you hit on something that was a really um, beautiful aspect about him, which was, yeah, I mean, he was a great flute player. He was a great pedagogue. But he he just treated people equally. Yeah. It, he just happened to be like one of the great musicians. Well, first of all, you were not allowed to call him Mr. Bennett or Professor Bennett. It was whip. You know, everybody, no matter who you were, whether you were, you know, a student who just met him for the first time, you know, you were allowed to call him whip because he, that, that was just how he wanted to be. And it was the same for everybody. It wasn't, there was no strata there. And um, so, and, you know, on, on, you know, in the summer schools, he would enjoy just getting to know people. It didn't matter how well they played or where they were in the sort of pecking order of, you know, there was no, no star system. Um, and, And it, and I think that's incredibly healthy and um, something to learn from that. Uh, it doesn't matter how you play. It matters what kind of person you are. And uh, to treat people kindly and uh, equally and with respect. Yeah, somehow he was able to, he would see people. He was a very playful person. And um, if, you, if you look at photographs of Picasso as an old man, you know, Picasso and, you know, Somehow, you know, Picasso will be sort of leaping around his studio and very playful. And and Whip had that too, this playful quality of, and, and this just wonderful, playful relationship um, that I think great artists have. You know, they, they take the work seriously, but they don't take themselves too seriously. And it's a, a I mean, that's perhaps an oversimplification, but that... Um, playfulness and that that beautiful you know that childlike uh, joy in what you're doing that never that never left him and so I think that you know when you when you 
bump up against that as a student, you know, that is quite disarming in a beautiful way. And, you know, I noticed that perhaps more as, a, as an adult, you know, than when I would teach on the summer schools and things like that, when just I observe his teaching and just see, that's really beautiful the way, it just his playfulness puts people at ease and uh, it kind of disarms the, these anxieties about status or, or am I okay, am I doing okay? And, you know, and, and then you just enter into this kind of playful artistry that is very, you know, it's very serious, but it's not, it's, you know, and it's very real and it's very valuable, but it's um, that that way in. I just wanted to bring up that that playfulness in his personality that would also be reflected in his wonderfully colorful clothes and bright clothes. You know, that's just kind of taking delight. And because he would take delight in what he was doing and in, in just his way of being, it gives permission to other people to do the same. And so then I think they're more at ease and then you can actually get down to the real work. Like, where does this phrase go? You know, because you, people are not worried so much about how am I doing? Am I okay? Am I, you know, it's just, let's play together. Was there a difference in the aspect of, well, you have an audition and therefore you should play, you know, in a certain way versus uh, the solo repertoire, which I know he adored, the the show pieces, I know. So was there a difference in in his teaching? Because I remember there were definite ways here in the States of playing for an audition versus in the concert. But I imagine, let me guess, Wib would just say music is music and be a musician. What do you think? 100% right. Uh, and I subscribe to that too. I love that about him. I, I must say, I don't really ever recall sort of preparing for an audition with him. You know, I'd take some excerpts to him. You know, I remember having a wonderful lesson with him on daftness. You know, I, I, I mean, there's certain lessons that really stand out in my mind as being really, having been really incredibly inspiring. But it was actually never about executing. You know, it was, it was all about, you know, Oh, this music is incredible! You know, and listen to this, and look how, look what he does here, and um, you know. So, it, it it music is music. I mean, I have to say now I <laughs> been around the block a few times myself. So now I, I'm I'm more aware with my own students about helping them prepare, like in the mental aspect of especially of preparing for auditions. But I don't ask them to play differently in an addition. I'm definitely more conscious than he was about helping them prepare for the ordeal of it, you know, and, and or, the, or the pressures of it and just how to navigate and how to handle that way. And we, when we just muddled along. Did he teach the piccolo or did you play the piccolo for him at all? I don't remember that. I, I bought his, I bought one of his piccolos. I've got his lovely old Haynes piccolo that I think he recorded the Vivaldi piccolo concertos on. Um, no, I don't recall ever... I don't recall ever having a lesson on the piccolo with him. And, uh, you know, he was so interested in, in the, the, the tuning, the, in the intonation and the scale of flutes. You know, he was so really into that, that one of the things, he, he, he had a hard time with the Baroque flute just because as an instrument, it's so out of tune it, itself. And, but, you know, these, these were some of his 
great interest, you know, the, the scale of the flute. And uh, I mean, he, he was a great piccolo player. I think he just picked it up and played it. I don't, I think he just had a great ear and, you know, he, he would put his putty in the holes and just try and improve the tuning. I mean, my little Haynes piccolo still got his putty in the holes and <laughs> <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for inviting me to contribute to your terrific podcast. I'm hugely honoured. My name is Emily Bynan and I shall be forever grateful for the four wonderful years that I spent studying with William Bennett, or WIB as he liked to be called, at the Royal Academy of Music in London. He was and still is such a huge inspiration to me that it's really very hard to describe in just a few words all that I learned from him or what he meant to me. Actually, rarely a day goes by when I don't think back to something he once said in a lesson or imagine how he would sound playing a particular phrase. The incomparable sound, that glowing vibrato, that incredible singing quality and the vivid shapes and colours in his playing. The words that he used to show the shape of the musical phrase to his students. The journeys he took his listeners on, all utterly fabulous. I don't think there are many lessons that I teach these days when I don't quote him or share his various, often very witty texts to help us show the shape of the phrase of the music. He was also widely interested in all kinds of music, in literature, in the visual arts too. His parents were both architects and from an early age he loved drawing. When he studied in Paris, he sent letters home with the most glorious little illustrations and my music, my sheet music, is filled with funny faces, angry faces, storm clouds, dancing, imps, whatever he could sketch in the margin as a little reminder of the music's character. Wibb was a true English eccentric, and we all absolutely adored him. Aside from his outrageously colourful suits, he would sometimes get us barking like a dog to learn how to activate the abdominal muscles or perhaps teach us how to tune the piano in his teaching room. He often sang and danced to illustrate a musical point in the lesson and, much to our embarrassment, often got us dancing and singing too. He once came into a lesson after what he'd called a rather boring orchestral rehearsal and asked if I minded if he stood on his head while he listened to the etude I had prepared. He wanted to get the blood flowing to his brain again. <laughs> Wibb was absolutely unique, like no other personal player that I've ever met. He was genuinely larger than life and his influence and inspiration will, I'm sure, continue to spread across the flute playing world and endure for generations to come. The wonderful Wibb. He lives on in all our hearts.
So he had a flute made to his own specific taste in, in scale. Well, yes, I think it was something that he, he spent a long time sort of studying and, you know, and he, he was friends with Albert Cooper and, you know, just, just, I think he was just fascinated by that. And, and he had the kind of brain that could cope with that. But even in his, even in his teaching, like there was this, um, absolute insistence on not only good intonation, like really good intonation. I mean, he couldn't stand it if people played out of tune with themselves, you know, and, but also this idea of having an in-tune tone where the structure of the tone itself is, uh, has its full complement of overtones, that it's not sort of slightly above the center and a bit thin and a bit, and then a bit edgy, but it's it's rich. You've got your lower partials in the side, and you stack you stack it up like a chord. He, he had brilliant ears, and um, the way he understood intonation and relative pitch and tempered tuning, things like that. But even just within the sound of a single note, that for that to contain multitudes, you know, and and for it to like for us to hear it sort of like a chord or to be able to imagine the whole harmonic series boom just wrapped up in in the richest uh, most resonant radiant sound and that I'm so grateful for that because that and I remember in my very first lesson when I you know I grew up in Scotland I remember my first lesson in London and uh, when I heard his sound live it was this tsunami it was this beautiful tsunami of warmth and radiance and resonance that's what it was like you know I'd never heard I mean just the sound was just it felt good in your bones you know and that's because it was so the, the structure of it you know the, the the care the care with which he made that sound and what he listened for um oh this this sounds airy fairy but it's it's what I believe you know it's beneficial like that is beneficial to the world to hear a sound so beautiful and that's basically that's everything I try to teach and everything I try to do uh, is based rooted in that and I, I I would feel like when I listened to him I felt like it would put the cells of the body back in the right order like or anything that was disordered would come back into order just the just the quality and inte integrity i think the integrity of the sound and also the open-heartedness of it and that's maybe something helpful to share with people because i think he was one of the most generous musicians i've ever heard I and mean, he was a generous human being with other people but as a performer he was unbelievably generous because you know how many of us uh, you know maybe hedge our bets or or defend slightly or um it was absolute open-heartedness and standing in his own power not in any um blustery way but just in a very very beautiful Wait, is somebody taking up their space in the world? Um, and uh, I asked him about it once. I said, you know, Whip, when you walk on stage, you know, because I wanted to understand a little bit more, just so I could help my own students. I said, 
when you walk on stage, it's it's also sort of like this immediate you sense warmth, you know, which is a very beautiful thing. It's not self-regarding. It's not looking for admiration. It's not looking for approval. Not looking for praise. It's just very simple. Just this uh, warmth. And so I said, so so what goes through your head? And I said, that's not nothing. <laughs> that's not nothing. I mean, that that's a conscious. That there's an orient, orientation there to what you're doing. And that's what I wanted to ask him about. And and he said, well, when I walk on stage. You know, I try, I, I, I try to sort of just engage with the audience, like look, look, pe- look at people, look people in the eye, you know, and that's so beautiful because how many of us, you know, are just, you know, we want to kind of forget the audience is there or whatever. Just, no, look at the, you know, look them in the eye so that they can relax. How beautiful is that? So they have been acknowledged, the, the, the nonverbal language that communicates an enormous amount right and then and then he also said and then you know he wasn't a religious man but he said and then i i say a little prayer i will do my best and then i play i just said it's so beautiful it was so beautifully simple too and it's it's courageous it's courageous and there's also the things i take away from that is that that way of orienting towards your audience, towards the situation, to fully accepting, embracing the situation, um, respecting the people who are there that you're sharing the room with, and also this wonderful self-acceptance. I'll do my best. You know, and so then in an unfettered way, and you just offer what you can offer and uh, get on with it. Hi everyone, I'm Denis Burikov and um, just want to share some memories about WIB. Amy, thank you so much for doing this podcast. I can't wait to hear the whole thing. Um, of course, I have so many memories of WIB. I was studying with him for five years and we've been friends until he passed away. So um, even during the pandemic, we did a couple things online and of course, we, we have so many memories and stories. He was such an amazing human being, funny, kind, as they say, larger than life. Uh, that definitely, uh, it's definitely about web. So I, I wanted to share a couple, a couple little memories. So first of all, the first time I saw him, I was 17 years old and uh, studying in high school in Russia, had one more year to go and went to his summer school. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know uh, that much about web because in Russia at that time, you know, there were not many recordings available. So I 
I only heard his CD with Bach Sonatas and I thought he sounded amazing, but I didn't know much more about him. And I expected, you know, coming from Soviet Russian training, I, I expected professor to look very serious with a tie, like my professor did. He came to every lesson with a suit and tie. And so I went for the first time abroad alone at this time, because um, even though I've, I've traveled the world already with New Names Foundation and Vladimir Spivakov's foundation playing concerts as a kid, I never went alone. So this was uh, exciting and a little scary adventure for me. Uh, because I didn't really speak much English. I, even though I took a lot of lessons, <laughs> it wasn't um, quite enough to get by, and especially in in England, where you know, the accent was hard to understand and everything. So, um, I remember I arrived at the um, train station, and of course I took the wrong train. British system is very complicated, and you sometimes have to take the right car, and I was in the wrong car, so I went the wrong route and then I realized that I had no cell phone this was 1999 so I went to a payphone and I called Michi and I couldn't understand almost anything she was saying my English was terrible anyway I told them the name of the station I'm at and they said they will come and pick me up um, so I thought some assistant will come or uh, maybe a friend but Wib came himself driving, and this was the first time I met him. So he came to pick me up from this station in the suburbs of London, and um, he was big and strong uh, and dressed in really bright colors, something I did not anticipate at all. And he took my suitcase from me and carried it to the car, and I was terrified how can I let Professor carry? So I, the whole time I was trying to fight this. And I said, no, no, Professor, I'm sorry. No, I'm going to carry this. Anyway, he put it in the car, drove me to the place. And next day the classes started. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, this will be a long week. I don't understand anything he's saying. It was so complicated for me, you know, trying to figure out the English. And uh, the student kept trying and played over and over. And then finally... This moment I still remember because I had goosebumps. Wib took out his flute and he demonstrated. So he played whatever phrase he was talking about. And I remember this was like electric shock to me. I was like, oh my God, what was this? I've never in my life heard such a round, beautiful, lush sound as Wib had. And I'm sure those of you who knew him personally and who have heard him play live will know exactly what I'm talking about because uh, his recordings is, uh, are amazing and that's one thing but when you hear it live it was spectacular the tone he had was just I think there's no comparison with anybody else this richness and um, roundness of it which was incredible but never forced and that's what Wib was always teaching how to produce this um, beautiful singing sound without force. Anyway, so this was my first memory of him. And I, of course, from that moment on, I was completely in love with everything he was saying. And I really wanted to study with him. So during the course, I told him so that it would be my dream. You know, it would make my life if I could come and study with you. And of course, I was very dramatic, you know. 
and over the top and um, so he he said okay why don't you apply for the academy and we'll see what we can do and anyway we did um, in the end I, I went to London I studied with him for five years and um, there were many many funny stories but um, since it's only a few minutes I I think I want to mention that I owe him also my marriage because uh, my wife Erin who also studied with William Bennett she she came to London in 2004 after she graduated, graduated from Oberlin with Michelle de Bost and she came to London to study for her postgrad with with Webb and I heard oh there's a new student Erin she came uh, from America Korean and friends were talking about her and she heard of me but we haven't met somehow uh, because she had her lessons when I couldn't make it to to hear her lessons and she was asking Webb um, by the way I think I would like to do some international competitions what would you recommend what do you think am I ready and he said oh competitions you should talk to Dennis and he gave her my number and she felt very strange why she had to call some random student and uh, ask him about the competitions so she didn't call and then next lesson she had we asked her so did you call Dennis and she lied and she said that she did and that I did not pick up the phone and he said well try again um, if you want to talk about competitions talk to him so finally she did call me <laughs> and it was a very awkward conversation she said, oh, Wib gave me a number. He said, you know, I, I was asking him about competitions and he said um, that you've done a few and you could help. So we met in the cafeteria at the academy and we sat down and I didn't know what to say and she didn't know what to say. We, we kind of had this strange talk. But then um, another friend came by and sort of things got easier and um, gradually we became really good friends and then we became best friends and she was dating somebody else I was dating somebody else we we were never single at the same time but the beginning of our friendship was because of Web. and then in 2007 or so when um, I did the Maxence Lario competition and Web was in the jury that's when they realized that we are together and that's the, around the time we got together with Erin so they were very pleased, <laughs> of course. Uh, so I owe him not only my musical life, but um, also my personal life. I wouldn't have met Erin, and my life would turn out completely differently, too. But I wanted to also uh, share a funny memory of Wim. This one time, um, I was in Lithuania with my friend Gedrus and Wim. So Gedrus organized with some concerts and one of them we played together. So three, three of us plus uh, an organ player because it was in the church and they had no piano. So we sort of rearranged a couple of things and uh, made it work to play with organ. Um, and Wib also another thing he liked to do was rehearse a lot and not really look at the time. So if we had the two-hour rehearsals scheduled, chances were the rehearsal would last for four hours, and uh, during that time we would rewrite some parts, we would try 
various things. It was a never never ending process until the concert started. Sometimes he would finish things right before uh, uh, sticking parts together and things like that, little bits and pieces in different parts. So um, we finally finished the rehearsal. It was an eight o'clock concert and we finished rehearsal very late, probably 7.20 or so. And we had to eat dinner because we were starving. So we went to a restaurant nearby. We ordered food and we told them we were in a hurry. But of course, anyway, it took time. And we we finished our meal about 7.55. So we get in the car. It was a few minute drive. And my friend Gedrus is driving and he starts to freak out a little bit because none of us are dressed. Our instruments are somewhere in backstage. So we have to get dressed, get there. And he said, oh my God, oh my God, we're late for the concert. And I think by the time we got there, it was already 8 or 3 or so. He's like, oh my God, we're late. And we stayed very, very calm. And he said, no, we're not late. The concert hasn't started yet. <laughs> I thought this was so hilarious. He was always really funny, had an amazing sense of humor. I miss him so much, this... Um, it's such a pity he passed away so soon. We all thought he would be teaching until 95, like Moise. But I guess this is life. Thank you so much, Amy, for sharing everybody's memories and for making this podcast. I cannot wait to hear everybody else's memories. And I'm looking forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. It didn't matter if he was in front of a major symphony orchestra or the Venezuelan flute orchestra. And I'll never forget being program chair for the 1999 flute convention in Atlanta. And I called Wib and, of course, Michi. And I called them on their house phone. And I said, hello, it's Amy Porter, and I'm program chair, and I want to know if you can be involved in the Atlanta Convention. We're a hub for international flights, and you're one of my choices, along with um, Peter Lucas Graf. And also, instead of Alain Marion, uh, Tanguy, Jean-Michel Tanguy came. Well, they told me that Wib was playing a lot with the Venezuelan flute orchestra. And so I was able to create a band that I called Wib and the Venezuelans. And the amount of heart and soul and laughter and tears that was in the final concert of my convention was overflowing. And it was Wib and the Venezuelans. They ran the show. I just left it up to Wib to end my convention. What do you think, Lorda? It was so fun. I bet they brought the house down. They did. <laughs> Here's the other thing. He ended concerto night, and I sat front row for Wib playing Reinica with the open G-sharp system. Didn't miss a beat. In fact, that was his jam. So I agree. He could light up a room... Uh, just by his humility, disarming. No, but I think it's also also his connection with the music is right. so strong. I mean, he he was just he's a great musician, you know, and a great artist. Yeah.
Amy and Lorna. Uh, thanks for inviting me to share my my memories of WIB. Um, I remember meeting him for the first time. Uh, I was a student at Cheatham School of Music. I must have been about 17. And um, I got on a train from Manchester and locked myself in the toilets, practicing all the way from Manchester to London. I went in and met this wonderful man for the first time. And I played the first boot of the Eber concerto to him and uh, I stopped playing and there was a kind of gap. And he eventually said, you sound like a trumpet. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Um, to tell you the truth, um, I found Wib absolutely dazzling, overwhelming. Um, he would have been about 40 when I knew him, as a late, my late teens and early 20s. And he had this feverish, distant, intense look in his eyes that I really found quite uh, disconcerting and overwhelming. Uh, and hearing him play during those times, it was just like uh, seeing something impossible being done right in front of your eyes. It was truly overwhelming. And to tell you the truth, for that exact reason, I never really wanted to study with him. Because it's like, uh, it's like, it's like the sun, as beautiful as the sun is, you need to protect yourself from it sometimes. And I felt that uh, studying with him uh, I would risk wanting to copy him. Uh, and uh, so I kind of kept my distance from him for many years, although I went to all his concerts and I adored everything he did. I just kept uh, some distance. And uh, in the last months, um, we did become closer. I saw him several times in this last year before he passed away. And uh, it was very sad to see him so frustrated that he couldn't give what he so wanted to give. Um, but, um, you know, the memories of him in his prime, what he gave, what he represented, uh, that's really what is predominantly in my heart as a memory. Would he teach through tips or would he, as we've learned uh, on this podcast, be like Julius Baker and say, play it like this. And then he'd play and you'd be like, okay, I get it. You don't have to say a word. So how was that? What was that like, especially for the French Conservatoire? I, I think the biggest influence, honestly, was hearing him play play them. You know, he would demonstrate and, you know, and then you'd get it in your ear. And I think that's just so incredibly helpful. You know, I think we learn. I think we learn on, on multiple different levels. You know, so so I think the biggest one for me was just kind of learning by osmosis, like hearing that sound. I would say the most profound lessons that I had with him were on the simplest of melodies. So Marcel Mauss' twenty-four easy melodic studies: how to play a melody, how to phrase, how to spin the sound, how to use your vibrato. Um, 
intelligently and how to modulate the energy and the sound with your vibrato speed, with your with your air, like how you would develop the tone in a phrase. And then and then how how you would build the phrases together. You know, how one phrase would build on what was just said a moment ago. And so that foundation and then also um, we did a lot from the tone development through interpretation, the moist, because Wib was a great Marcel Moist devotee. So in a way, the technique to me, like the technique, uh, as, you know, in terms of tone and phrasing was taught more through those little melodies. And then, and then you would apply it to these French pieces. And frankly, that's why he loved, you know, those big operatic fantasies, the Tafner ones, because they had those very simple melodies in them. I mean, that those were also some of the greatest lessons. Like in Freischutz, you know, there's a couple of beautiful slow melodies. That's what I remember most about studying with Whip. How demanding and how... Uh, he pushed you, pushed you to speak through the instrument, you know, and to, to phrase. Um, like the worst crime in a lesson would be if you're not saying anything with the music. That would be the worst crime. I, I mean, he would have no, I mean, he would get mad. He would get angry with that. I would see him in classes just getting angry. Like that is not music. Like you're not, you know, what are you doing? Um <laughs> So when I think about, you know, the French conservatoire pieces, so much of it would be to do with what is the tone of voice here? Okay. And what is the story you're telling here? Um, you know, so, so then that would inform what kind of sound you're making, you know, and it's so lovely. It's such a lovely, rich way of thinking. So it's not, um, okay, there are a multitude of different pianos. Right. Ways to play piano. Is this a warm piano? Is this a luxurious piano? Is it, does it envelop you in like velvet or is it, um, or is it very haunting and, and hollow and de timbre is the word he would use. Or, I mean, he, he was a very um, visual person too. So, you know, he would think, uh, oh, put some put some black paint in that, you know, to to to, to get the sound a little bit darker and a little, you know. Um, so everything in those pieces was to do with tone color, tone color and energy in the sound, and and telling a story. Sounds similar to Moise. Yeah. Well, I never met Moise actually. I did you meet Moise? Did you ever? Uh, no, but. Penny Fisher, she gets stars in her eyes on my Gobert study guide when she talks about meeting Moise. Her speech slows down and she all of a sudden becomes, you know, like you said, a devotee. <laughs> it was it was that way, but flute was life and life was flute. And back then there were no distractions. It was just music and flute. <laughs> Hello, Amy. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share some of my memories of WIB on your podcast. 
The first time I heard Wib playing in person was when I went to his master class in Breckenridge, Colorado, in 1985. He played his A to the piano, and I have never ever heard anything like that. His tone was so enormous and expensive. It was, it was like hearing the Grand Canyon in your head. The piece that he played that evening was the Mignon Fantasy. When he got to the cello solo part, it was so beautiful that I got teared up. It was an unforgettable week for me. Next, I have a funny story to share with you. Years ago, on one of my visits to London, Wib was very concerned about Albert Cooper not getting enough assistance from the local government to help caring for his sick wife. And Wib was trying to show the local council that Albert couldn't even keep his house clean by bringing a bag of fox poop that he collected from his back garden. Interestingly, I met a few of them, and one of them was named Lucy. Unfortunately, Albert did not get more assistance from the council, but he had to clean up his house all by himself. Whip was always ready to answer or help anyone with flute problems, no matter how tired he was. It must have been 15 years ago, he came to Toledo to do a flute festival. During that week, I must have said th something about my flute being sharp or flat or whatever. One early morning, he got up early and asked to see my flute. He got some paper out, his tuner, a pen, and he started playing my flute and taking notes and, and writing things down and, and then took my flute apart. And the next thing I knew, silver dust was coming out of it. He put, he was scraping in some of the tone holes and putting plaster scene in some of them, putting my flute back together, playing it, taking notes, writing down measurements, and that went on for hours. And when he was done, my flute was much better. And we even made it back to the festival in time for his afternoon master class. I feel privileged to have known Wib, and every day I'm still digesting things I learned from him. Thank you very much. He epitomized the most, in a way, generic sound for the genre he was playing. If you were playing the, the Baroque Concerto Grosso, then you sounded like this. And then if you were playing the French Conservatoire piece, you're playing like this. He was just, we talk in other podcasts about the musician's musician. He was the flautist's flautist. <laughs> I think. Yeah, and I, I think maybe something else that might be helpful to, to share is, is his interest. In, uh, you know, and I think for, for the young flute players who are listening to this, one of the great things about Whip was his curiosity about music. You know, it just is huge curiosity so he was forever uh you know listening to great singers he loved janet baker and you know he would try to copy how she would sing you know and he would he would try to copy things like that you know he loved um hearing great violinists so adolf bush um you know who was involved in um, marlborough you know was colleague of moises um 
you know, that was one of his favorite violinists and he would listen, you know, how do they use vibrato? How are they spinning that sound? You know, and part of that integrity in the sound comes from listening to those great non-flute players and, and somehow incorporating that in. So for example, for, for the young flute players who are listening, like listen to great string players with, the, you know, often on the flute, the vibrato can just sit on top and be kind of stressful and annoying to listen to in great, a great, Violinist like Augustine Hadlich, you know, the vibrato is going above and below, and so you have a beautiful centered sound. And um, or or think about singers and their resonance. And so so Wood with his tone colors would be trying to emulate uh, singers and um, and uh, violinists. And so I, I think that was a a wonderful example to learn from. You know, I have his book here. I, it, it, if people don't know about this book, this is a beautiful biography um, that Edward Blakeman wrote along with Wibb. Wibb, A Flute for Life by Edward Blakeman. Okay, and how many pages is this book? It's by over just over 200. Mm-hmm. And who's the publisher? Where can we get it? Um, the publisher is Tony Bingham. And, you know... They should have it in most flute shops. Um, they certainly will have it in the British ones. So if you can't find it, try um, Just Flutes in London. Just Google the name is Just Flutes. Absolutely. There's a picture in here that I show my students. It's like the most beautiful hand position, left hand position. It's a thing of beauty. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's full of these little beautiful cartoons i mean he was he loved doing little doodly drawings like that and they're they're hilarious and and witty and fun he was an illustrator even this image on the front is one of his drawings can you see it that's oh my goodness portrait and you know he, he loved foxes because foxes you know there were some urban foxes that had their home in his back garden in london in stockwell and i i just love this cat, one of his cats trying to escape the flute sound so um, and the fox has his ears covered with his yeah. paws yeah, that's, you did, that's a kind of beautiful, not taking yourself too seriously, you know. <laughs> beautiful humor. Jeff Zook, and thank you, Amy Porter, for having me join this podcast on William Bennett. I became a Wibite when I was 16 and performed for him at the Detroit Flute Convention for the National Flute Association and uh, fell in love. I fell in love. He was my hero from that moment on. I collected his LP recordings and uh, followed him around. I went to the Wild Acres Flute Retreat every summer in high school 
you know, there was something about all of us who were Wibbites. Uh, we had something in common, uh, not only a love for the flute, but also we, we sounded uh, similar. We had, there, there were some hallmarks of our playing that we all kind of got from Wib. Um, you know, we, we, we followed his uh, guidance on uh, how to make a great sound on the flute. And uh, I remember one person saying once, like, you can tell someone that studies with William Bennett because their intonation is impeccable. And, uh, you know, that was the thing that I, I gained from listening to all the students was that everyone played really amazingly in tune. You know, he challenged us artistically. And uh, I, what I really loved about Wib was he never made you feel uh, self-conscious about anything. You know, of course, you're a little nervous to play for such a great flutist. And he would start by saying things like, so you played an F sharp instead of an F natural at the top of page three of the Pulang Sonata. He says, doesn't matter. You did it with such musicality. And then he'd go on and tell you what he liked about your your, your, your performance and uh, always put you at ease uh, before he started the experiments. Like, how can we, how can we figure out new colors? How can we figure out new ways of making the sound? And he wasn't afraid of um, taking risks, you know, helping you take risks at a performer, um, you know, go to the very edge. I loved the master classes so much at Wild Acres that I, I, I dreamed about studying with him in England uh, one day. And I remember he, he performed at the Hill Auditorium in Ann Arbor when I was a freshman there. And I remember going backstage to ask him if I could study with him in Freiburg, Germany. <laughs> I walked into his dressing room and he dropped his trousers. He was changing from his tuxedo into his regular clothes. And we had this conversation with his trousers now, which I thought was outrageous. I was, uh, of course, I turned red. Um, but he told me what I needed to do, uh, to get into that school. And, uh, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I couldn't afford what, what was necessary, but I did study with him subsequently at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And, um, that was a magical year. Uh, he helped me become an artist with my flute, um, I remember one of the things I didn't want to do was take this acting course called the mastery and all his students had to take the mastery. And it sounded like a nightmare to me. I was a nerdy little kid from Jackson, Michigan, who was in his little shell, uh, didn't know myself and didn't know how to express myself. Uh, but I could play the flute. Right. And, uh, his wife gave me a, I said, I can't afford it. I can't afford it. His wife gave me a scholarship. He just handed me a check. She's like, here, go take this class called the mastery. And um, I was so scared. But I remember coming back and he looked me in the eyes and he said, now you know why I wanted you to take that course. And I, I looked him right in the eyes. I said, I absolutely do. He, he taught me uh, how to communicate uh, with my flute and with other people. And um, we also learned about how to become leaders. You know, I remember uh, learning from his wife that she said, you know, uh, a good teacher is a student of their students. We learn from our students, and that's how we communicate. We learn from each other. And I thought, how is this this great teacher, this professor at the Royal Academy, uh, saying that that she's a student of us? You know, and I learned that uh, when I became a professor myself, that I have to learn learn from the student as well. And that's when true communication happens. Um, I always loved the way he would say. Mm, C 
something about the sound, something about the vibrato. And, um, you know, he, he could help us get atmosphere and color in the sound, uh, inspired us all to, to, to take new limits and make new sounds on the flute. Uh, yeah, he was a great teacher and a great inspiration. Um, I have to say that there isn't a flute lesson I don't teach where he's not present in the room with me in some way, shape or form or his wife. I mean, that's really where I learned how to play the flute. The, the classes with Michi uh, were formidable about how to, everything, how to breathe, how to hold the flute. Um, he was gone for my first month at the Royal Academy. We studied with Michi. I was so disappointed. Uh, I spent the first two weeks lying on the floor playing uh, diaphragm attacks in a low register, and then I'd stand up and play harmonics. And if they weren't in tune to a nth degree, she would just shake her head. <laughs> I got to graduate to the uh, Telemann fantasy, uh, which is if, if you didn't show clearly the musical phrase, she would just, again, just stop you. And she, she was a, uh, a taskmaster at a very high level. But uh, what I learned from her was invaluable, but it built, it helped me, you know, be ready to play in the masterclass for, for her husband, which was you know, I didn't understand at the time, but it was it was an amazing gift that he was actually gone for that first month because I learned some fundamentals that I, I would have just glossed over because, you know, I could play the Nielsen Concerto. What do I need to play uh, whole notes, uh, you know, <laughs> with my lying on the floor for? I didn't understand. But um, anyway, those are some of the reminiscences of uh, the William Bennett Flute School and how it affected my life, my teaching. Um, and my playing. Thank you, Cheerio. Well, something that I would really love to share with people and that I think is super, super, super important is that they can delight in what you do. And to me, that was like the most beautiful lesson, you know, that I, that I learned from him. At the level of the phrase, taking delight in a phrase. You remember lessons on... Like, for example, the B minor Bach sonata. And there's this one bar where the flute kind of does this beautiful sort of arabesque up. And he, he just stopped in the lesson. He said, isn't that just incredible? <laughs> and so that sense of joy and, and wonder. And um, I have to say it's important to A, never lose that, and B, defend it, I would say. Because it's not an easy profession, and um, so I, to to me, that is like a little true north right there. That example. It's not enough to just play the instrument. You have to live the music, and he taught he taught that. Oh yes, I mean the flute is inconsequential. I mean it's just that's right. yes, it's the music that's the important bit, and you and it just. The flute happens to be your medium. Well, we have covered the spirit of William Bennett, which to me is more important in the legacy he has left since his death. I know there's a book by Roderick Seed. That's a very nice book about, about his teaching, about some of the sort of fundamentals of his teaching. You know, when, when we were talking about the most influential lessons that I remember with him, about, um, you know, the Marcel Moist um, easy melodic studies. He was also teaching 
basic grammar. I mean, when I think about it, that's what he was teaching. Like how to how to phrase, how to play a melody. But there were also specific techniques in that, like how to play repeated notes so that they were beautifully articulated, enunciated. How to play a poggiaturas so that there was the tension and resolution, and that you really had the chops to be able to control that. So it wasn't just something you think you, you think about. You actually had the physical map of of how to, and what you were going for, and the more you know, the point of emphasis having the most vibrato and the resolution having less. You know, slowing down, being able to slow down the vibrato on the resolution, as as you perhaps slow down the air to make a taper. You know, and then these things were actually specific skills, specific skill sets that uh, help you speak more through the instrument. So it's not just wishful thinking. It's not, I'm I'm just going to feel it and emote. No, it's like you would actually have the tools to be able to speak clearly, make the meaning clear. And and he also had a way of using um, the breath that was very vocal too. You know, and he would talk about having a, a huge range of different types of articulations and, and and different ways of starting notes. He would get very annoyed if you just went all the time. <laughs> you know, that sometimes you would have this very a slower, much gentler release. So it's it's just an interesting thing when we're trying to build our technique. You know, I mean, you want to have clear articulation, but you also want to have such a wide variety, just as in language, you know, you have all our consonants, you know, some of them are harder than others, or some of them are a little bit gentler. And so that all of these things give you ways to, to speak through the instrument um, and, and, and be articulate. Uh, different ways to sort of release this, the, the speed of the air too, or this, this vocal quality I'm thinking about was sometimes um, yeah, ha, ha, like sometimes coming in on a note without any articulation, just coming in right on the breath, and it, and it has a very, very human quality and um, heartfelt, and like you're just singing on the breath. So things like that. I mean, he did he did so much instinctively, I think, that it wasn't necessarily like he would spell out physically, this is how you do X, Y, and Z, but so, but these are some of the more specific things that I wanted to share with people. I'm so glad I just assigned the Moyes 24 melodic studies. So perhaps, you know, the William Bennett legacy has so much Moyes in it that we can turn to, to listen to Wib for a lot of this, you know, just music is in the water. Music is, the flute is inconsequential. Exactly. The the music is all there is. Bel Canto singing, that was also a big Moise thing. So it's this book, I'm, I'm excited to, t- to teach in it because some of these amazing flutists have to come back to remember what the germ of music is. Yes, and those, I have to say, they look so easy on the page. You know, so for the students listening, do, do not be fooled. They're like some of the hardest things, like to really do them well, like to really do them, not just to kind of skim over them, but to really do them, like takes 
an enormous amount of skill and control and listening and attention and uh, it's they're beautiful I, they're, they're really hard you know <laughs> well we will keep the tradition alive of course I know I see that you were one of his last partners in summer school yeah those were really uh, fun times and, and I just also want to say you know people uh, you know know the name of William Bennett but I, I, I just want to also acknowledge Michi as, as a, you know such a I mean that, 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 that their partnership um, you know when I first went to the academy to study the Royal Academy in London to study I studied with Michi uh, for my first year uh, Michi is a fabulous teacher and um, it was tough because it was like pure technique for the whole year but it was really really, really, really wonderful and beneficial and Good. so um, the two of them had this this have, have this outlook on life that is so generous and, and positive and um, also full of joy and, and brightness and life force inclusive yeah. very inclusive well thank you for for being here i appreciate it greatly thanks for doing this amy i i, I appreciate being able to talk about about web with everyone so thank you thank you to all the guests for their memories of their beloved teacher I'd also like to thank Wibb's wife, Michi Bennett. You are so loved by so many and celebrated for your dedication to the flute, to your students, and to the gentleman everyone loved named Wibb. You are constantly in the hearts and minds of all the people that met you both. You can visit WilliamBennettFlute.com for more information. That's WilliamBennettFlute.com. You can find me at one of three websites, amyporter.com, or this podcast, porterflute.com, or aos-wellness.com. On social media, I'm Porterflute and Anatomy of Sound. Thanks for being in Porterflute Pod. We'll see you next season.